Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of August 26th, 2019. On the show today, news, and Jim helps us celebrate the upcoming birthday of Big Thunder Mountain. And speaking of Jim, let's bring in the man who is definitely 100%, absolutely not a Disney corporate agent planted in the fan community, running a decades-long scheme to promote Bob Iger's interests. I don't know where that idea even came from. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, oh, Lynn, I'm so sorry. I, 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 <laughs> busy, I have, busy cashing the checks from the Walt Disney Company. Running a little late today, are you? <laughs> I'm so sorry. My corporate masters have neglected to send me today's script. So, uh, to be honest, Lynn, I, I have no idea which project I'm supposed to be talking up or whose career I'm supposed to be destroying. So, we're kind of flying blind today, Lynn. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you have no idea what we're going about, uh, it's a huge inside baseball Disney fan community thing. Uh, email us if you have a question about it. It's kind of crazy. Damn. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of crazy, let's do a mm-hmm. shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Kraken, Dave P, and Taylor R, and longtime subscribers Mary Beth T, JT, and Mike B. Crazy fact, Jim. These folks are the choreographers who came up with the Kermit flail move for Kermit the Frog. You know where Kermit raises his arms above his head and goes, yeah! I'm told it was a combination of Bob Fosse videos and Jägermeister that led to this inspiration. True story. It's not far from the truth, actually. (laughs) If you want to learn the real story, Brian J. Jones wrote an amazing biography about Jim Henson a couple of years ago. And there was kind of a tradition when Jim didn't know how a skit was going to end that they either blew up the characters on stage or had another character eat a character. <laughs> it's, it's the uh, Muppet equivalent of letting the interns finish the script. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. So <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, my God. All right, Jim, let's do the, uh, the news real quick. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, an alert listener visited Galaxy's Edge during the previews and got the following survey questions. There are two. Number one, how big a fan are you if each of the following on a scale of one to five, five being very big fan? And the, the choices are Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, and Marvel. Question number two is, in the past year, how much did you or anyone in your household spend on Star Wars products? And they're asking for a dollar amount. So, Jim, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what Disney's trying to figure out here. And let me start with this. This week is the opening of the second of two Galaxy's Edge lands in the U.S. parks for which Disney ostensibly paid a billion dollars. Isn't it a little late in the game for them to be asking guests how much they like Star Wars? Oh, yes, Lynn. <laughs> hey, we just built this thing. Tell us how much you like it. <laughs> I mean, everyone's talking about, oh, okay, we got the Anaheim, we got the Orlando. And Walt Disney Studios Paris has its own giant expansion of what, right. 2.2 billion with the Marvel Land and Arendelle from Frozen and Star Wars Land. And remember when they were talking about originally doing Star Wars Land and talking about how they made a deliberate choice not to do Hoth, not to do Endor, not to do Tatooine, because this was your Star Wars adventure. You know, you were going to go to a place that had the classic elements from the films. You had your Millennium Falcon, you had right. a cantina. You had but it wasn't, it wasn't bound by stories in the past. They could open it up to stories in the future. 
Okay, so <laughs> we've got Paris, we got Shanghai, we got Hong Kong, we got Tokyo, other places that Star Wars are going. And literally, from what I understand, there's kind of been a full stop on going forward with more Black Spire Opus, more Batu, and there's a thinking maybe the reason that the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal was successful because hey, I recognize Hogwarts Castle. Or <laughs> with this is what one of our one of our early one of our sorry one of our listeners who got a preview yeah. said about mm-hmm. this that there's not an emotional connection with Batu because we don't know what Batu is, whereas with <laughs> Hogwarts and Gringotts and stuff like that, people know it from the movies they want to visit it. I think all That's of it exactly like, that you know yeah. Diagon Alley they've seen through the and there's just a thinking now that maybe going forward that perhaps a stronger tie to the films might be a, a smarter way to go. Getting back to the questions with this survey, it's like before I spent the billion dollars, I might have done a little more research about how invested people are in Star Wars. There's a there's a, a story going around in it. I want to do a, a major segment on it at some point in the future, but it was mm-hmm. how there was supposed to be a lot more live entertainment. Oh. And the interesting thing to me was drones apparently were in the mix as well to provide move to kinetic movement. And we've talked about these things, right? That they they don't exist in Galaxy's Edge. But apparently they were planned and got cut. Getting back to Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris, there's a Marvel indoor stunt show where at one point Doctor Strange on stage gestures to a full-size car has rolled out on stage. Oh, you you were telling me this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Now picture that only with starships flying over Batu, yeah. giving you the sense that it's, it's an active spaceport. Right. There was so much stuff on the table. In fact, you and I talked on earlier shows about the stunt show that was supposed to happen in the bizarre area where stormtroopers from the First Order were supposed to chase members of the Resistance right. along the rooftops. And you were supposed to stand at the bottom of the bazaar and watch all this happen. And as this project moved through its development phase, and it, as always happens with every Disney theme park project, things start to fall off the table. And I'm kind of hoping it's affordable enough that maybe they could put it back on the table. Here's the way I'm looking at this. It snows in Paris. They could do Hoth. And it's super humid in Hong Kong. They could do Dagobah, right? Okay. There you go. There I'm you just go. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, so here's the second part of the, this, this question. Sorry, the second part mm-hmm. of the survey was this question about how much you spent on Star Wars products. And the interesting thing to me here is the previous question about how big a fan you are of the following. This person answered that they were not mm-hmm. very big fans of Star Wars. And that somehow led to a question around how much you spend on Star Wars. It's like saying, I'm not a huge fan of minor league baseball. Mm-hmm. And then the next question being, hey, how much money did you spend on minor league baseball last year? What, what, what's Disney trying to understand with that question? Or those two questions? It's sort of like the person who's on the diet and it's like, okay, so how much you spend on donuts? There are ways we answer questions. And then if you come at it from a different angle, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not a, a big Star Wars fan. But but how much you spend? Well, I bought the Blu-ray DVD of The, the Force Awakens. So it's like, oh, okay. It's a, so, okay, it's a, way of, it's a way of determining how honest your answers were or how accurate That's it exactly. Okay. Right, so, so if you say I'm not a very big Star Wars fan, but I spent $1,000 on it. Mm-hmm. You know, for my family last year, then okay. yeah. I mean, that just at this point, Disney's trying to get some some solid information as to where the floor is. You mentioned that, but by the way, do you realize how much is riding on Rise of the Resistance being oh. a smash hit right now? No, no, <laughs> it's basically double or nothing. Yeah, we talked about this previously about how they haven't been able to keep it operating 
for more than an hour at a time. Mm-hmm. I mean, those who've ridden it say it, it is everything that you want a Star Wars ride to be. The fact that it's low capacity, it's difficult to operate, it's, it's so technologically advanced that if one scene goes south, you have to dump yeah. the whole show. The funniest part of this is that Anaheim, having had its brutal summer with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, was perfectly happy to let Orlando take the lead on this. Like, absolutely, you roll this thing out. You have it crashing. <laughs> Godspeed, <and> jungling. <laughs> you know, that's it exactly. You so. know what? That's, a, that's admirable right there, guys. Go ahead. Yeah, but now this time they're up first, right? Yep. So. Ooh. I'm just hoping that the band at Disney's Hollywood Studios is familiar with Nearer My God to Thee because, you know, they, they may need to play it a lot. So. I was, you know, as I was prepping the show, I had a joke for Nearer My God to Thee and I can't remember what it was. It was the song that they played on the Titanic as it was sinking, right? Yes. What was it? Oh my God, I'm blanking now. This is going to come to me in the middle of the night and I'm going to wake up and call you. Oh. <laughs> All right, Jim, uh, another piece of uh, news. Uh, this week, Disney announced two new ticket options for Walt Disney World. The first one is this multi-day after 12 noon ticket called Midday Magic. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why they didn't call it Afternoon Delight. That gets you into the <laughs> – thank you. That gets you into the park after 12 p.m. It comes in various options between two and four days. It's priced by date like every ticket. But, for example, you can show up after 12 o'clock for two days for $161. Or with a park hopper, it's two thirty eighty eight for two days. You can also uh, get uh, water park options, the golf course, and so on. But here's my question, Jim. And let me let me put the question in context. Between now and the end of the year, mm-hmm. the Magic Kingdom closes basically every other day by six p.m. for hard ticket events. So you'd have if you bought this ticket, you'd have six hours tops mm-hmm. in the Magic Kingdom. We know that the Animal Kingdom is going to be sort of closing around night, you know, dusk or slightly after, maybe 7 or 8 o'clock, once winter hits, right? So once the days start getting much shorter. What's Disney thinking here in terms of the value proposition? Is this for convention traffic? Is this for late sleepers? What What's it for? In talking with folks at the park about that, what they're hoping is the combination from an operations point of view – They'd love the notion that starting at noon, you'd be spreading crowds out. You'd have, you know, the the more budget-minded traveler who opted for this package that would then begin showing up at the park. Because face it, you know, if if you go to the parks in one, two o'clock hour, if there's a parade that's about to happen in that theme park, yeah, there's some activity out front. Yeah. Otherwise, you have a lot of people standing around doing nothing. And that's the thing with Disney these days. Again, from an operations point of view, that's one of the reasons why between the Fast Pass and the dining, 180 days out on the dining, it's like, okay, we know how to staff the parks because we project this many people are going to show up. And you, you hit upon the convention thing that, yes, this is something you can sort of slide in the direction of, of folks you have coming in for conventions and go, this is the option. But it, also understanding that realistically, if it's a convention group, they're most likely going to Epcot anyway for the dining and the, you know, the nighttime entertainment and that sort of thing. But this is, as I understand it, is a trial. It ends in, what, early December? Yeah. This year. They're just going to gather data for the, you know, the next three months or so, eyeball, you know, how people go about purchasing this and, and who does and for what re- I mean, the, anybody who buys this ticket should anticipate the survey will probably arrive about three seconds <laughs> after <laughs> you buy it. Exactly. <laughs> Why and, did you and, buy this? <laughs> and <laughs> you know? tell us and, more. Tell us more. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Especially after 
this somewhat difficult summer out west and the weird financial pressures that you know the company came under. This is this was rolled out rather quickly, and they're definitely gathering info. And, and if it if they get a strong response, expect a version of this to roll out again in 2020. Okay, so speaking of things that rolled out quickly, Disney also announced last week an all-dates pass for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party at $318 for adults and $302 for kids. The idea is that this gets you into all of the Not-So-Scary Halloween parties except the one on Halloween. So I guess from an economics perspective, this ticket makes sense if you are already planning to go to three events. But I got to ask again, Jim, is there really this much demand for these events that it was worth doing all of the work needed to create and promote the ticket? This is more about Disney reacting to what's going on down the street. Universal does sell a season pass to Halloween Horror Nights. And there is oh, okay. All right. There is a certain subset of horror fans that will go multiple nights, and more to the point, between what they spend on food, what they spend on merch. And remember that Mickey's Not-So-Scary, in fact, it's right there in the title, was created as a response for Universal launching its Halloween Horror Nights. So it's like, well, look, they're doing it down the street, and if we get these people to come back and they're springing for the overpriced cupcake and you know the glow-in-the-dark lanyard and that sort of thing, we'll get our costs back on this. Yep. This isn't going to appeal to a large segment of the Disney theme park fans, but the hope in the company is that there's just enough of them that they'll spring for this, that that they'll eat in the park and they'll buy the merch and it will all yeah. even out in the end. Yeah, they made Valley Park. They might decide to stay on site one night to make it easier on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of like having to drive there and back. Okay, so that that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see who buys these kinds of tickets. So, uh, dear listeners, if you actually if you're look, looking at buying one of these tickets, let us know in uh, in an email why you think this particular set of tickets is attractive to you. Mm-hmm. And speaking, Jim, of ticketed events, one more. Disney announced this week a set of after-hours events extending into 2020. So these are the uh, things that run for a few hours after the park closes to regular guests. It's available at every park except for the studios. So um, it sounds like that sounds like to me, Jim, that the studios is going to have some sort of Galaxy's Edge themed events. Does that sound right to you? Yes and no. At least for the first six months, I've told that special events for Galaxy's Edge are off the table. On the other hand, they want the option. You know how there have been nights, for example, the Magic Kingdom will extend its operating hours due to a larger than expected crowd for an hour or two with that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The hope is that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disney's Hollywood Studios will be a big enough success. And let's remember, where it's positioned at the back of the park right. is so deep. Just when you, you know, when you go to sweep that park between... Bringing people out from Galaxy's Edge, bringing people out from Toy Story Land. Yep. This is going to be that much more challenging. So it's like, at least for the first six months or so, they want the option of, we're going to keep the park open for another two oh, hours Oh, okay, so. for an extra, or they'll extend the regular park. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, but this is the Walt Disney Company. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, when can we get this operating efficiently so we can charge more money for everything? <laughs> That's exactly. So, trust me, the extra hours event is coming especially on the heels of what happened out in Anaheim this summer. They need six months worth of people to go home and evangelize to their friends and family. Like, right. Oh, my okay. God, I went to Black Sparrow, but you have to go. So whatever makes this a seamless, ridiculously entertaining, wonderful experience is what they're going to do. Got it. Okay, that makes uh, total sense. All right, Jim, a couple of other events. One, we saw it coming. 
just not this soon, but Bongos has closed at Disney Springs, marking the end of an era. I believe this was the last of the pre-Raglan Road restaurants still in operation at Disney Springs. And as you'll recall, it's being replaced by a bakery slash coffee shop slash healthy options place called Beatrix. I suppose, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the closing date was early so they can get work started on the new place sooner. Does that make sense? Not to belabor the obvious, but we did just have the MBA experience open on right. the side. And we're all standing very patiently waiting for the announcement of the replacement of El Nuba, or Lanuba, which was supposed to be open by now. From a West Side point of view, getting something in that would excite people and that they'd actually go to, right. unlike the NBA experience. I wasn't going to bring that up on this show, Jim. Let's save that for another <laughs> for Okay, another all right. <laughs> I'm just saying the Titanic may have had a more successful launch. There <laughs> we just, go. <laughs> at, least the, at least for the first few days. Yeah. That's what I'm going with on that. We'll talk about okay. that more on an upcoming show. But is that it, okay. Jim, that they, uh, they waited for it to... Uh, uh, NBA experience to open so they could close. Yeah, yeah, we have one more tooth back in the smile. Okay, so right. we can pivot on this, you know, this other part of the West Side that we need to work on. All right, Jim, uh, one more topic. We're recording this a few days before D23 opens. Obviously, there's going to be a bunch of theme park related announcements that we're going to talk about on the next show. But I wanted to work this one in because I think it's a, we may hear something. The uh, work continues apace on the bridge connecting the Grand Floridian to the Magic Kingdom. And it looks like this is going to be some sort of one-piece bridge that swings open and closed on like a large pole, staying closed and walkable during the day and pivoting open to let out the water pageant floats at night. So imagine like a drawbridge instead of uh, it going up and down, it goes left and right. I can't wait to see how this uh, happens. But Jim, how surprised would you be if Disney announced some sort of development along this pathway at D23? The lack of surprise at this end, <laughs> you know, me face it. <laughs> The only thing that would hold up development here is sort of a Venetian resort situation where if they went in and did the construction footings and once again they sank and were never seen again. I mean, this is incredibly valuable real estate between the, the Floridian and the kingdom. In fact, I was talking about how friends at the wedding pavilion are, are openly salivating to get some sort of a space that they can it, get a sort of, you know how... When you're going from the UK to Paris at Epcot, there's that mm -hmm. weird little island space yep. where they do the dessert parties and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The wedding pavilion people would love to put a function space there, you know, to the effect of while everybody's off getting their photos taken, you know, the rest of the folks move to our outdoor dessert pavilion and enjoy the view on the water and that sort of thing. So there are days when they're doing five weddings a day in there. Sure. So here, here's my question, though. Why put it next to the Magic Kingdom instead of next to the Wedding Pavilion? Because people are all dressed up. Women are in heels. Mm -hmm. Men are in dress shoes. They're not going to want to walk the half mile or so along that walkway, especially if it's summer, and it's humid, mm -hmm. or it's raining. Why don't you just do a completely separate thing by the Magic Kingdom? You're not wrong. The problem was that the place that they would have loved to have done this, the villas. You know, the Great Floridian <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's now called the Great Floridian Villas. <laughs> we, had, we had a plot of land picked out, and guess what? There's villas there now. Uh, On the other hand, a fleet of golf carts that could, you know, whisk people. You know, again, this is... You know, and face it, you know, it's not like people won't be paying, you know, the poor father of the bride won't be paying for the golf carts. You know, we can have coffee and snacks over here, you know, and, and it's only an additional $15,000 fee. So what do you say, sir? Let's do this. So Sure. It's, it only happens once. They are in competition with every other aspect 
of the Walt Disney World Resort. And you're not wrong. It's it's a primo piece of property. And remember, it wasn't all that long ago. In fact, I think I shared the art with you for the Fire Mountain Thrill Ride that would have bumped up against the railroad tracks there. So, you know, as we go forward here, it'll be interesting to see whether attractions get it, its resorts gets it, or Disney Weddings gets it. So let the fun begin. I'm going to go back to something I said a couple of episodes ago related to Tron and how Tron in Tomorrowland is actually pushed beyond the berm. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I think I, was, I would not be shocked mm-hmm. if we saw some other beyond the berm development project announced at D23. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. All right, All we'll right. see. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And after that, Jim is going to talk about how the Imagineers built the original Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, which first opened at Disneyland back in September of 1980. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Next month is the 39th anniversary of Big Thunder Mountain opening, and we're recording this a couple of days before D23, where there's speculation that there'll be an upgrade or refurbishment of the ride. Jim, before we start on the history of Big Thunder, what's that upgrade supposed to be? Back in March of 2014, we saw a Disneyland version of Big Thunder come back after a 15-month-long rehab, and... What they'd done is taken advantage of the advances that have been made in projection mapping. And everyone knows the earthquake scene from Big Thunder and the the falling rock illusion. And it's cool the first time you see it. On rewrites, though, suddenly it's like, okay, this is not holding up as well as it could. And And in in World, that particular effect isn't functioning anymore. It's not the way that it used to run. There you go. So on the other hand, the projection mapping thing where you you literally pull into that cavern and the way the projection mapping effect works, your eye is drawn to this series of fuses that have been lit and that are are, (laughs) are going at the exact same pace as the train. And your eye is drawn to this this mass of, you know, these boxes and boxes of TNT that are just overhead. And they do this amazing projected explosion effect just before you duck out and do your last run, you know, back to the unload uh, load station. So it, it's, it's a killer effect, and it's been long overdue to come to Walt Disney World. And as part of the 50th anniversary, a lot of stuff that's been at Disneyland for years, like the stylized Mary Blair version of Disney characters in Small World, are finally coming to the Magic Kingdom. So it's not really a surprise that the Disneyland version of Big Thunder and this projected effect is coming to, uh, finally, to Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. We've been talking for a number of years now about the challenges Disneyland faced with Batu and building something inside of the park and swallowing up that much terrain. And 
In a weird sort of way, the construction of Big Thunder, at least at Disneyland, was kind of a prequel to that. Back in May of 1960, Mind Train to Major's Wonderland opened at Disneyland. This was a $1.8 million extension expansion of front- Frontierland's uh, Rainbow Cavern Mine Ride. Jim, if there are Disneyland rides that I wish I could have seen, uh, this tops the list. You know, if you went to Disneyland Park in 1960, as you walked in with your park map, you were handed a flyer where basically it said Disneyland announces the grand opening of Nature's Wonderland. And mine trains and pack mules leave Rainbow Ridge and Frontierland to take you on a true life adventure through the newly explored Nature's Wonderland with its blended scenic spectacles and amazing lifelike activities. And here's the key line here, though, Len. 200 beasts, reptiles at work and play in their natural habitat, made possible through the marvelous medium of audio animatronics. And that, Len, is the very first time the public was made aware of what Walt himself had decided to call the mechanisms that powered the, you know, the mechanical figures in his parks. Audio animatronics. Yep. 1960. 1960. But here's the the thing. 1960 versions of audio animatronics didn't age all that well. And then you cup, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, this seven acre attraction was mostly outdoors. I mean, yeah, there was the whole Rainbow Caverns thing, which was lovely. By the way, let's pause on on Rainbow Caverns. Have you seen the Mickey Mouse short that plays off of Rainbow Caverns? Yes. Yeah. With Walt on the map. It is adorable. No, it is. It is. It just. (laughs) This map's never let me wrong. Anyway, all right, go ahead. <laughs> Again, these things are outside. They break down constantly. And, and more to the point, as the 1960s give way to the 1970s, Disney's thinking begins to change in regard to its theme parks, especially mm-hmm. in the Southern California market. They're facing increasing competition from places like Magic Mountain and Knott's Berry Farm, which are investing heavily in steel coasters. And Big Thunder Mountain Railroad kind of rose up out of the wreckage of Thunder Mesa Western River Expedition. And because Disneyland needed thrill rides to be stay competitive in California, mm-hmm. that's why the initial version of Big Thunder got built in Anaheim rather than in Orlando. I thought what, what might be interesting is to walk through how they actually built Big Thunder in California. Yeah, I'd love to hear this because it's a fairly large mountain, right? In a relatively oh, yeah. flat area. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's under all of that rock work is a show building. That was my first question. Like, did they move earth or is it a uh, is it rock work on top of a building? It's a little bit of both, Lynn. Okay, so let's start. January 2nd, 1977, Mine Train to Nature's Wonderland closes. By April of that year, there's a construction fence around the entire seven-acre work site. All of the trees, in fact, this is a wonderful throwback to... 1954, when they were breaking ground on Disneyland and they literally walked around marking the trees. This one goes, this one stays, you know, using different colored ribbons. And unfortunately, they had a guy who was colorblind on the site and took down all the trees. (laughs) Green, red, it's all the same. There you go. But anyway, they've tagged the trees that they're going to keep. And likewise, the ones that they, they have to take out are the ones they can move. And at this point, the budget for the entire attraction is $15.8 million. One of the ways they're looking to save money is they they literally pull every single one of the mechanical figures out and send them back to Glendale to Wed and Mapo to reevaluate them and sort of look to see, well, are there any ones we could use here along the Big Thunder ride track? Right. Okay, jump ahead to October of 77, the trees that they couldn't save on site, but that they wanted, you know, that were hardy enough to put elsewhere in the park, 
They plan along the rivers of America. They plan along the, the Disneyland rail track. And it kind of surprises me that they're making this decision this late in the project land. But October of 77, they decide on the ride control system for Big Thunder. And sure. it's basically the Space Mountain system and features all sorts of video cameras positioned along the ride track so they can monitor guest safety. Meanwhile, back in the warehouse in Tahunga, they're working on the earthquake effect and or the earthquake sequence for the attraction and all the practical effects they'll need to do that. Were the earthquake effects part of the original design for the ride? They were. They were. <laughs> but here's kind of the interesting thing, Glenn. Remember, as you initially pulled into the earthquake sequence, you know, the grand finale of the attraction, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you had like the lantern shaking and, you know, rocks tumbling it down and that sort of thing. And what they found is that whatever was shaking to tell you, okay, an earthquake is happening, mm -hmm. you know, had to be able to do this for 16 hours a day, 365 days a year. And what they kept doing is they, they'd set the thing up and they'd come in the next day and it would have sh literally shaken apart. And it's like, oh, all right, how do we build this so it can actually shake and give people the visual like, oh, my God, there's an earthquake going on. And it took them months to, to settle on how to solder things and how to sort of hinge things. And meanwhile, after all that work, after hauling all of those animals, mechanical animals back to Glendale, after all that, they decided the only thing they can really save, given the scenes that... You know, in the the ride space, they they said a family of mechanical skunks <laughs> that used to be in in Mind Train to Nature's Wonderland. And, and if there's a longtime Disneyland fan out there, I'd love for them to tell me where the skunks were because pre gaming today, I was looking through ride throughs of uh, Mind Train's and Nature Wonderland and never saw the skunks. Huh. About the same time, backstage at Disneyland, the Imagineers show up one day. And they're in the parade staging area. And what they do is they begin to take this area and they make this massive grid. I mean, that they just, you know, they get in and they carefully paint out this. this, this. Do, you ever, do you ever wonder, like, what the parade performers were thinking? Like, what you doing? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, I would be looking up to the effect, is the bomber flying overhead? Is there something I need to be aware well, of here? I, I told you a story one time of how I simulated the size of a Disney hotel room by putting duct tape on my driveway in oh. my house in North Carolina. Did I tell you? Do you no, I said this, no, but I, I, I'm loving this story. All right, story. we're going to digress here for a second, and it, it's okay. going to lead back to this. So uh, maybe like 10 years ago, when I was living in North Carolina, we were working on a visual guide for mm -hmm. uh, the unofficial guide, Color Companion to Walt Disney World, which is a picture-heavy book. And one of the ideas was we wanted to give people a visual sense of the relative size of Disney hotel rooms, like the size of a value room versus a moderate versus a deluxe. And the idea that I had was to mark out using duct tape on my driveway, different colored duct tape for each size room. So like a value resort room would be blue and 260 square feet in a moderate resort room would be red duct tape and 320 square feet. And then a deluxe would be green duct tape, but you know, 400 to 420 square feet. And they would all sit on top of each other. So you'd see like ever increasing rectangles. And the other thing I did was I was going to pull out some furniture from my house and put it in the room <laughs> to show you how much room you have left over after you put all the you know, things like dressers and beds and luggage and stuff in the room. So I I start laying out the duct tape on my driveway mm -hmm. in my sort of side yard. 
And I noticed like my neighbors are walking a dog as they're, they're going by. But when I brought out the upholstered chair that I had in my living room to give pe- and, and bed sheets to give people a sense of like how big the bed was, the neighbors actually came up to me and their, their first question was, what are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> like what, what's you're, you're, you're lowering our property values here. What, what's going on? <laughs> So I had to explain it to them. It ended up being a great photo, which I, I really, really liked. It's one of the things that I'm most proud of in that particular book. But anyway, I definitely understand the point of doing some work in a place where you're not supposed to be doing some work. And while people around you are going, uh, what is this dude doing? So, okay. So, Jim, they're, the Imagineers are working on the parade float grounds parking lot. They're prepping this space for the construction of the rock work. This is the Big Thunder Mountain for Disneyland. You know, the rockwork that covers this show building is modeled after the hoodoo rock formations that you find out in Utah's Bryce Canyon. And this is back in the slide rule days. This is not CAD design. This is right. somebody sitting there having to suss this out. And the construction process for Big Thunder is fascinating. All right. Step one is they built a one-quarter inch to one-foot model of the Big Thunder Mountain in the model shop. And then step two is the engineers at WED take a look at that model and figure out, okay, to support this, the the metal structure underneath this thing, what does that have to be in order to be structurally safe? And so they then, you move up to a half-inch size model, but the gimmick is that you constructed out of wood where you'd be putting all of the steel beams. And then you lay foam on top of that, and somebody at Imagineering sculpts that film so it looks exactly like the concept art that they put yep. together. So it's okay. uh, it's lightweight, it's quick, uh, mm-hmm. it's a first draft to see like how it all fits together. This is this is fairly common in lots of industries. Okay. Okay. So you have your one inch to one foot scale model. This mm-hmm. is then shipped to Disneyland, where several plaster casts are made. Now these plaster casts are sliced along their X, Y, and Z axes. And the profile of each slice is then committed to gridded paper yep. and then tied to a coordinate system. It's basically they're, they're assembling a 3D puzzle. This is it exactly. And it's fun you bring that up the week that Lego announced that they're releasing the Disney train station and or train to train station thing. Oh, my God. How many, how many pieces? Like 8,000? It's 2925 and 3, it's going to run you $330. I'm, I'm so far beyond worrying about the cost of Legos at this point. Like, I just, just give me the Lego set. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, I don't care what it costs anymore. I gave that up a long time ago. Smart man, smart man. Okay, so again, so we've got our grid laid out backstage in the parade staging area. We've got the design committed to gridded paper. We've mapped out our coordinate system. And so now what they do is they take these chunks out back and here's a giant pile of rebar. And then it's bent to using the the, the plastic or the plaster models that's been sliced along the XYZ axis. Mm -hmm. They bend these pieces of rebar. And when all three axes are shaped in rebar for a given Mm -hmm. piece of rock work, they're wire tied together. Mm-hmm. They then double-checked against construction drawings and the half-inch to one-foot plastic cast. If they check out, they're welded together. And then from here, you you reach for your quarter-inch pencil rod iron, which you then do the finer work piece yeah, with. Yeah, it, uh, it's basically the uh, the lathing that goes on in between the, uh, the rebar. Have you seen machines that will actually bend all of this automatically now? Now, you see, that's the thing. Splash Mountain 
that was the first time they were able to use, you know, a comput- computer-controlled system, and it made this process so much easier. So much Whereas, easier. Yeah, it's got to be, yeah. And, and this is the thing. For Disneyland, this was all done by hand. I was going to ask you that. So for Big Thunder, it was done by hand. Yeah. And, Crazy. you know, then, you know, once you've got your pencil rod in place, you then lay the, the metal mesh lathe over it. And then yep. once that's wired into place, they, they would spray it with what they called mud, that kind of gunite-like stuff. Yeah, it's got uh, it's got fiberglass fibers in it, so it sort of sticks over the, uh, that's uh, exactly. the chicken wire or whatever. Yeah. yeah. How do we know so much about this, having never constructed one ourselves? It's a lot of watching videos. All math, all science has left my yeah. head, Lynn. On the other hand, I, <laughs> I've read every old copy of the Disneyland line, the employee newsletter. And boy, when they were building this thing, they really went into detail. Once the, the gun out is dried, they then would carry them over to from backstage to the Big Thunder Mountain construction site. And, and again, much like our Lego train set, it's like, okay, this is... This goes in this part of the building, and you know yep. you construct the rock wall. Now, mind you, there were standalone set pieces that were so big and so heavy that they had to be handled in a different way. Like the the two upper buttes of Big Thunder, one weighed twenty eight tons all by itself, Len. The other one weighed twenty tons. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of rebar when you start talking about things that go vertical like that. Yeah, and they're probably yeah. awkward and top heavy because of the way that the uh, the way that they're constructed. So yeah, I can see that that might be an issue. They get a crane or something to put that in? They brought in a 150-ton capacity crane with a 40-foot boom. In fact, in March of this year, in fact, Disneyland with great pride talked up the fact that, you know, there had been a DC-10 that had slid off the runway and blown its tires at LAX that had to be lifted by this same crane. And they're like, yeah, that's the one we want at Disneyland because we want to be able to talk about, you know, this amazing new attraction we're building. And meantime, once this is all done, once all the mm-hmm. lathe is in place, as the painters are beginning to sort of paint in that Bryce Canyon color scheme, here comes the group from Interiors that has been driving around Northern California and out into the deserts of Nevada and that sort of thing, looking for, you know, authentic, you know in fact, 80% of the propping that's done around Big Thunder for Disneyland was from real mining, I get a, a real mines. You get a, the gold nugget mine in Jacksonville, they, they, Oregon. They did, they did have a gold rush out west. I mean, they could probably pick up the stuff cheap just by you know going into some farmer's field and saying. It's interesting you say cheap, Led, because it's like they bought real gold ore. They, they for eighty dollars a ton, and in fact that's scattered as show elements on top of all of these yeah. lathe covered pieces of rebar. It, it has realism though. I mean, it's, it's it actual does. stuff used during the, uh, the gold rush makes, makes complete sense. So win-win for everyone. But again, because of that half to having to hand bend all of that rebar and, you know, that sort of thing, Big Thunder Mountain was originally supposed to open in spring of 79. And then the opening date slid till summer of you know, that same year. And, and as you mentioned, because we're celebrating the birthday in, in September, ultimately they couldn't get it open before September 2nd of 1979 because it's just all of the time, all of the effort to make this thing as authentic as possible, which brings us back to where we started this story today, which is the Disneyland-inspired redo of Walt Disney World's Big Thunder Mountain at, at the Magic Kingdom. The very fact that when they shut down Disneyland's version of Big Thunder in January of 2013, at that time they promoted it, it's like, oh, it's only going to be down for 10 months. And, you know, we come back, we'll have this major projection mapping system. And 
That project, just like the construction of the original Big Thunder, fell behind schedule and didn't ultimately didn't open until March of 2014. I just want to caution folks that, yeah, when this goes down and they, they put in their amazing new projection mapping thing, this could be a fairly lengthy rehab. So I'm, I'm hoping if they're going to have this thing open by 2021, that, that they're smart and shut it down sometime early in 2020 because this could run a little longer than they expect, Len. Yeah, they can... Um they could uh, bring it down like maybe during September, October when it's relatively slow. Late I hope, August, I September hope, next year. You yeah. know, the, the supposed gimmick of Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary is that there are going to be 50 brand new things for you to do. And that would be one of them. Yeah. And we're, the, not, yeah we're not talking about cupcakes here, right? We're talking no, about no, things you know, to do. The, there were the big things like, you know, the Galaxy's Edge thing. Yeah. Tron and uh, yeah, Guardians and, of the Galaxy, stuff like yeah, that. But yeah. then you have smaller redos like the... You know, the, the putting the Disney figures into Small World and the projection mapping thing here. But all of these things tie, take time and they take money. And let's just hope Disney has plenty of both out ahead of the 50th. So I'm sure they can uh, get it done. It sounds like it's a worthwhile addition to uh, to World. It's open. Uh, by the way, Jim, uh, unrelated, but I just sent you a uh, private behind-the-scenes making of America the Beautiful CircleVision film. Ooh, I sent okay. you a link to it. Not, uh, not available to the public. So uh, we'll talk about that on an upcoming show. Cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. On the next show, we're going to talk about all the announcements coming out of D23. And if we have time, we'll get an on-site review of the new Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party Entertainment from my sister, Christina, who's apparently still willing to do research for me after all these years. She can't get enough, apparently. And if you can't get enough of us, head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's opening for Blood, Sweat, and Tears at this week's Corn Palace Festival at the Mitchell Corn Palace in Mitchell, South Dakota. Have you ever been there, Jim? Oh, God, yes. My family <laughs> went there. Listen, we've both been there. <laughs> in, in 1970, and it was one of these things where it's like, the, the Corn Palace, the Corn The Corn Palace. Explain that once you went inside, it's basically a high school gym filled with folding chairs and card tables selling... It's Fine. You know. It's a it's a slice of Americana. That and Walt Rug. It's certainly a slice. You know, it's a slice. It's slice. a slice. Yeah. All right. Anyway, Aaron may uh, join uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears on stage for a guitar solo. While you're waiting for that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>